If you have a Bible with you, please turn back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 7. This is a passage that shows us however dark things become for God's people, we never need despair. The situation here in the book of 1 Samuel was a very bleak one indeed. God had raised up a new prophet for Israel after a long period of silence. And that new prophet Samuel was very much in the spotlight in the first three chapters of the book. But then Samuel becomes noticeably absent In chapters 4 to 6 of the book, he gets a brief mention in verse 1 of chapter 4, and then he seems to disappear entirely from the scene. And the content of chapters 4 to 6 makes rather gloomy reading. Uh, You read of Israelite stupidity in chapter 4. They take the Ark of the Covenant out with them into battle, that holy chest that was meant to be kept in the... Uh, tabernacle. They take the Ark of the Covenant out and they seem to think that by doing this, uh, by taking that box with them onto the battlefield, they could somehow manipulate God into helping them and engineer his blessing. They fall into a superstitious mechanical kind of religion. And then you read of Philistine misery in chapter 5. God strikes them with a plague because they have taken that ark into their own possession. And you read of Israelite misery in chapter 6. A great number of the people of Israel fall down dead because when the ark is returned, they gaze into it or possibly upon it, which was forbidden. So there has been a lot of Death, destruction, and doom. These were dark days, spiritually and in other ways, for Israel. And so it comes as something of a a breath of fresh air when you turn to this seventh chapter and at last you read again the name Samuel. After 56 verses of absence, we finally read of God's spokesman addressing this nation. So contrary to how things might have appeared in the intervening period, God hadn't really abandoned Israel. He hadn't actually forsaken his people. His especially chosen mouthpiece is still there in the land and through him God's grace is going to be shown in a spectacular way to a disobedient people. And this teaches us That though God may very well discipline his people for a season, though he may withdraw his blessing upon them for a time, though he may hide his face from them, perhaps for a fairly prolonged period, yet he will never give up on them completely. He refuses to disown them. He will not cast them away altogether, no matter how far from him they have strayed. He's a faithful God whose loving, devoted commitment to his people never ever comes to 
an end. And so this is a very encouraging chapter for us. It shows that however dark things become, for us as individuals or for us collectively as the people of God, we never need despair. Let's consider three great lessons that come to us from this chapter. The first one it comes out in verses uh, 2 to 6 especially. They show us the repentance God accepts. The repentance God accepts. The people of Israel, we're told, have been lamenting after the Lord. That is, they've been mourning over the way things are in the nation and they're longing for God to make his presence known. Things have been in a very bad state indeed and the people uh, crave the uh, evidence of God's favour and blessing upon them. And in verse 3, Samuel instructs them as to what they should do. He says, if you return to the Lord, or if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. Samuel is calling for repentance. And we can observe from his words that repentance means more than just feeling sad and sorry. Repentance is often reduced to that and such feelings may lead to repentance, but repentance itself goes beyond feeling sorry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that godly sorrow produces repentance. So godly sorrow is not repentance in and of itself, but it gives rise to repentance. Repentance is something that involves more than a sense of grief and regret. Repentance is a change of mind and heart that results in an actual change of life. It involves a a radical shift uh, within you that uh, leads to a new course of action. Uh, The Hebrew word for repent literally means to turn, to turn back. A change of direction is involved, like someone uh, heading out in their car on a journey and Uh, realising that the sat-nav is taking them down the wrong road and so they have to do a U-turn. They are repenting. In the New Testament, the Greek word for repentance means to change one's mind or purpose, not in a purely intellectual sense, but in a way that alters your actions. So John the Baptist spoke of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul spoke of performing deeds uh, meets with repentance, in keeping with repentance. Repentance that doesn't involve changed living is not biblical repentance. And is this true repentance that Samuel is calling for here? Uh, The word translated there, uh, return, in verse 3, is from the same root that's often translated repent or turn back. And Samuel says that if the people's returning to the Lord, if if their repentance is real, it will mean 
They put away their idols. They'll discard their foreign gods and abandon the worship of the moon goddess, Ashtareth, and they'll commit themselves to the exclusive worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Their allegiance will be his alone. So lamenting is a good starting point. But Samuel wants the Israelites' sorrow to lead somewhere. He wants it to produce altered conduct. And verse 4 tells us that that's precisely what happens. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. They turned their back on their idol worship and they devoted themselves solely to the one true God. And in verses 5 to 6, there's a great gathering at Mizpah. Samuel prays for the people and the people indicate their repentance by symbolically pouring out water, probably a sign of the, the heartfelt sorrow that they're pouring out. And they fast, a common way of expressing grief. And they confess their wickedness. Look at what they say partway through verse 6. We have sinned against the Lord. They acknowledged that they had gone astray. And so you see the Israelites are clearly in earnest. This isn't a shallow, superficial kind of thing. They're really serious about actually abandoning their old ways. This isn't just a casual turning over of a new leaf. It's a wholehearted return of heart and soul to the Lord's. A wayward nation is finally repenting for real, and the rest of the chapter reveals that God accepts their repentance. Even though they'd gone so far away from him, even though they didn't deserve a single other blessing to come down from heaven upon them, even though uh, they had fallen into such a mess and such a state, God accepts the repentance. Healing comes to the nation. God sees their sorrow, he hears their confession, he observes their turning and he brings restoration to the land. He is the God who, and we should be wonderfully relieved by this, he accepts human repentance. And I want us to consider this point not simply as a challenge that we need to be repenting, but also an encouragement. Yes, we should be challenged about our ongoing need for repentance as the Lord's people. We need to think about our own lives and priorities and conduct and ask ourselves what our modern equivalents are to these Baals and Ashtaroths, things that are clouding out the Lord from our life, that are absorbing all our attention elsewhere, things that are getting in the way of our spiritual walk, and we need to be prepared even to be radical in the extraction of those things from our lives, and not just tell the Lord we're sorry about them, but let our sense of sorrow lead to changed actions. But it's also tremendously encouraging, is it not, to remember that we have a God in heaven who responds to the repentance, however much repentance they need to do because of the terrible nature of their sins. The God we've so offended by our sin is a God who's also willing to pardon and restore us when we turn back to him. However far we have strayed, 
However serious or vile our sin may have been, however long we might have been persisting in a particular sin, there is always a way back to God through repentance. The God of the Bible is a God who accepts repentance, even in the case of the most awful and wayward of sinners. And this isn't because repentance washes away your guilt. It doesn't. Repentance isn't something that means we gain a right to forgiveness. The people here, after they'd repented, still deserved judgment. Their repentance didn't didn't atone for their guilt and make them suddenly worthy now of blessing. They still merited wrath and destruction. God accepts their repentance purely as an act of grace. He doesn't have to respond to their repenting, but he chooses to do so in pure love. We must never think of repentance as something meritorious, that is, something that earns or achieves you favour from God. As simply turning from wrong doesn't cancel out the wrong you've already done. Think of a murderer standing before a judge in a court of law. Just because the murderer is sorry for what he's done and maybe in floods of tears and promises he's never going to murder anyone ever again, that doesn't mean, does it, that he should no longer receive any sentence for his crime. The law has still been broken. And no amount of sorrow and repentance can undo the fact that the law is broken and a sentence is due. And so with us, when we repent of our sins, we mustn't think that we're thereby atoning for our guilt and putting ourselves in a position now where we deserve favour from God. We've still broken God's law, we still deserve his wrath, but in grace God freely chooses to smile upon our repentance. He doesn't have to, he's not compelled to, but he delights to do so out of sheer kindness, because that's the kind of heart the living God thankfully has. Nothing you do can ever cancel out your sin. It's only the blood of someone else shed on a cross, the blood of Christ that does the atoning for the guilt. It's the payment Jesus made at the cross that wipes out our debts. It's because of that sacrifice where God sees uh, the sentence has fallen, the judgment has come down, the sin has been dealt with. It's only because of that that God can then look with favour upon those who repent and he can pour out his blessings upon them. But this is the most magnificent thing, isn't it? It's such good news that however much of a mess we've got ourselves into, the God who made us, the God who rules on high, is ready and willing, we might even say eager, to accept repentance. It's always possible to be restored, even though we could never make up for what we've done. It means however far from God you stray, however tangled up in a sticky mass of sin you might have become, however deep into wickedness you may have fallen, you are never beyond the pale as far as forgiveness from the Lord God Almighty is concerned, because our God accepts repentance. Now perhaps you have never come to this God 
in repentance. You've been uh, pursuing your own course through life. You've been rejecting God's authority over you and indulging in whatever sins happen to take your fancy. Perhaps you've heard the good news about Jesus and his sacrifice again and again and you've been resisting it and keeping Jesus at arm's length and uh, stubbornly, willfully persisting in doing life your way. Let me assure you, the way of repentance is still open to you now. doesn't matter how long you might in the past have been saying, no, I won't, I won't submit to God. He's still willing to accept you, even after a long, long period of defiant rebellion. If you acknowledge your guilt and abandon your folly and cry out to him for mercy in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven. Immediately. The promise of Acts chapter 3 verse 17 is going to stand firm until your dying day. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Why would you wait a moment longer for that to happen? This massive debt that you have in the bank of heaven that will damn you to hell forever. It can all be blotted out and gone for good if you would but cry out in repentance to this God who accepts repentance. Or perhaps you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, but you've drifted a long way from him and you've maybe got caught up into all kinds of waywardness and immorality. Perhaps you've kept it secret from other believers and people in your family, but you're knee deep as it were, or even up to your neck in uh, all kinds of sins. Well, however far you have fallen, God will never turn a deaf ear to your repentance. You may feel utterly ashamed and guilt-ridden and filthy and dirty and rotten to the core, but you're not too dirty for God to refuse to listen to you when you repent. Your repentance will always meet with a warm and favourable reception In heaven, God will not say, no, you've gone too far, you've sunk too low, you've done the same thing one too many times now and I I will not listen to you. No, like the the father in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, that father running uh, zealously and enthusiastically back towards his son the moment he sees him returning and and flinging his arms around him and, and lavishing kindness upon him. That's how God responds when one of his straying children comes back he won't cold shoulder you dismiss you shut the door in your face and say you've gone a step too far in his grace the joy of your salvation can be restored this very night His words to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3 apply to you as well. He says, Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with me and he with me. Words spoken to believers who've gone astray. And what is offered is renewed fellowship, renewed communion, renewed intimate interaction with Christ. Aren't you glad that that's the kind of God you have in heaven? A God who no matter what is willing to accept repentance.
Here's a nation that has failed him again and again and again. It's fallen into such terrible depravity. But here they are repenting. And God responds in a wonderfully predictable way. He shows mercy. There's hope for you in that, isn't there? And for me as well. However conscious we are of the awfulness of our sins and our utter unworthiness before him, God is never going to ignore your repentance. Secondly, verses 7 to 9 teach us about the prayer God hears. Trouble rears its head again in verse 7 of the passage as the Philistines make ready to launch an attack. They've heard about this gathering at Mizpah. They see it as a golden military opportunity. Now that Israel is all assembled in one place, perhaps the Philistines can conquer them decisively in one fell swoop. And when the Israelites hear about the approaching forces, they're absolutely terrified. So what do they do? Do they send for the ark again and try to manipulate gods into helping them. Thankfully, they've departed from that folly now. They do what they should have done the first time when they ended up sending for the ark. They, They now put their hope where it should be lodged. They put it in the Lord himself. And they recognize that only he can deliver them. So look at verse 8. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. And I don't believe we're meant to be critical of the Israelites here and say, well, shouldn't they be praying themselves rather than asking Samuel to do it all for them? Samuel is God's chosen representative. He's been publicly established as God's prophet on earth. And so asking him to pray is not so much a neglect of their own duty, but a a recognition of his divinely appointed office. And at a practical level, the Israelites were expecting any moment to be engaged in the fierce heat of battle, whereas Samuel would not be. They don't know at this point that God is going to uh, thunder from the heavens and uh, bring about a solution before the fighting even starts properly. Uh, So the people here are saying, in effect, while we are busy fighting, please will you, Samuel, do the most vital thing, that is, offer up prayer to the Lord on high, because we can't do this without God. And note, they do refer to the Lord here as our God, not your God. This is an expression of real faith. The Israelites have come to realise that, yes, they are completely dependent on God for help. And there's a sense in which this chapter is chapter 4, the one where they take the ark onto the battlefield, is that chapter revisited. Only this time Israel do things right. So in chapter 4, the Philistines uh, draw up against Israel and the people say in that chapter of the ark, it may come among us and save us from the hands of our enemies. Now they're looking to Yahweh himself and they say, He may save us from the hands of our enemies. They've abandoned mechanical religion. They're now uh, trusting in the Lord himself. And it's so important for us to keep on remembering this principle. Our help ultimately as God's people is not going to come from men, from methodologies, 
from human schemes and strategies, from programs or from politics, it's only going to come ultimately from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so Samuel cries out to the Lord for Israel. But note the very important detail in verse 9. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. Samuel's cry is accompanied by a sacrifice. His prayer is presented along with the blood of a lamb. Atonement has to be made for Israel's guilt, and it's on the basis of this sacrifice that Samuel then cries out to the Lord, and the Lord, we're told, answers him. This is a vitally significant picture for us to uh, take hold of, particularly in relation to our praying. Our God is a God who answers prayer, but why does he do so? Why does he listen to the cries of sinful people and respond favourably to what they say? It's only because of a sacrifice that blots out transgression and turns wrath away. The lamb offered here is just a shadowy picture. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who loved us and gave himself up for us and uh, meekly and quietly went to a cross and endured woes that he didn't deserve. The one who presented himself as a fragrance offering to God. He's the one whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, a sacrifice that turns away God's anger. And answered prayer is always the fruit of that sacrifice. Spiritual victory is always the fruit of the blood that was shed at Calvary. It's only because of the death of Christ outside Jerusalem centuries ago that your prayers today can have any hope of being positively answered and accepted by the Father. It's also significant that we find Samuel here, one man praying on behalf of the whole nation. One man is pleading on behalf of the many. God's anointed one is interceding for a great multitude. Why does Israel win in this chapter? Because of the prayers of God's chosen representative. Why ultimately is victory absolutely certain and guaranteed for the church of Jesus Christ? Because one greater than Samuel, the ultimate anointed one, Jesus himself, is continuously interceding for us, though we cannot hear him, up in heaven. Hebrews 7.25 tells us he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. Romans tells us Christ is at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. So when we are surrounded by enemies on all sides, when threats and danger seem to lurk before us when, humanly speaking, all things seem to be against us. Isn't it such a comfort to know that not only can we be calling out to God ourselves, but there is always someone actively, earnestly, enthusiastically pleading for us and our situation on our behalf. The risen Christ is praying for us and his prayers are always effective. 
there's encouragement for you and I to draw from verses 7 to 9 here. We have a God in heaven who really does listen to and responds to prayers. Both the prayers we ourselves offer up and the prayers that someone else unseen to us is offering up. Our great high priest. And our prayers are made acceptable to him in spite of the faultiness that's so often a component of our cries. The prayers are acceptable because of the blood of the true lamb shed on the cross. Right, the Israelites, we're unworthy of having our prayers answered. But we've got a sacrifice that washes away all that unworthiness. And so our policy needs to be that of the Israelites here in 1 Samuel 7. What's our chief strategy meant to be as the Lord's people, as we seek to resist the evil one and advance God's kingdom? In a word, it's prayer. We're spiritual fools if we think we can make any headway without prayer. It's the Lord we have to be continually looking to for help and protection and success in his work. It's the Lord we have to be depending on for spiritual victory and advance. It's the Lord we have to be calling on for power and aids. Please do not miss the very simple but also important lesson of this chapter. We have to be those, because we're so weak and undeserving and the enemy is so strong, we have to be those who are crying out to the Lord in our helplessness, rejoicing that he is the God who hears prayer and putting our hope of anything positive happening in him and his grace alone. Is that really your attitude? Is your hope really, perhaps secretly and unspokenly on other things? Or do you say, it has to be the Lord who acts. Without him, we're done for. Thirdly, and finally, verses 10 to 17 teach us about the help God grants. Uh, Samuel's offering this lamb as a sacrifice to God, and the Philistines are drawing near. They're making ready for a ferocious assault. They're hoping to inflict devastating losses on the Israelite army. But then there's this most dramatic heavenly intervention. What do we read partway through verse 10? But the Lord. Situation is hopeless. There seems no way out of the trouble. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. There's this sudden, terrifying, deafening noise in the skies and the Philistines are thrown into confusion. Uh, there's panic and fright and muddlements seizing hold of them and the Israelites are now able to defeat them. They, they chase after the retreating Philistine hordes and they manage to strike them down. It's a, it's a resounding victory. The Philistines have been thoroughly routed. It's indisputable who has won this battle for them. It wasn't superior Israelite numbers or strength of arms or military skill. It was the Lord who gave them victory. Without his aid, the outcome would have been very different. Indeed, it would have been the opposite. It was supernatural help that won the day for them. They were saved by the hand of the Almighty. That's the kind of help we must be looking for and pleading for. Not earthly, natural, humanly explicable help, but God supernaturally intervening in us and in people's lives. Then in verse 12, we read that Samuel erects a great monument 
To commemorate the occasion, a stone is set up between Mizpah and Shen. It's a visible reminder of the aids they've received. And it's called Ebenezer, meaning stone of help. And so this story has a very different conclusion to the parallel story you find back in chapter 4. There the people tried to fight the Philistines using the ark as a kind of lucky charm, and it ended in disaster and crushing defeats, and the chapter closed with a name full of gloom, Ichabod, which means no glory. But now the people have fought, not trusting in a box, but trusting in the true God of whom that box was just a pictorial, visible representation of his presence. They're they're fighting by faith in the Lord. It ends in spectacular triumph, and we read of this name full of cheer, the name Ebenezer. For as Samuel says, hitherto, up until now, the Lord has helped us. And Samuel's explanation there shows this monument wasn't only meant to celebrate this most recent victory, this new instance of God's help was just the latest in a long, long, long run of instances of God reaching down and helping his helpless people. Till now, or hitherto, the Lord has helped. In other words, he has faithfully, uh, graciously, ongoingly helped the nation right throughout their history up until the present day. Again and again and again, his help is supernatural and his help is consistent. He delivered them from Pharaoh long ago when they were slaves in Egypt, an incident that uh, the Philistines had referred back to in chapter 6. Did the Israelites wriggle themselves free from their bonds? Of course not. It was the Lord who did it. And he brought the nation to the promised land and he parted the river Jordan before them and that occasion was marked with a monument, 12 stones from the riverbed and then the walls of Jericho had collapsed to the ground and city after city fell into Israelite hands. Did the Israelites manage to do this because of their own power and their great intelligent military strategizing? Well, no, of course not. God did it. And then in the period of the judges, God had helped them again and again. He saved them through Ehud. He saved them through Barak. He saved them through Gideon. He saved them through Jephthah. He saved them through Samson. It it gets repetitive in a gloriously good way. They fall into trouble and again and again help comes and more help comes and more help comes and another load of hope comes. Were all those victories engineered by man? Well, no, God did it. And did the people deserve all these repeated divine interventions? Not at all. They had repeatedly turned away from the Lord and gone after idols. And yet the history of Israel right up until this point was help after help after help from the Lord. And Samuel sets up this stone as a physical reminder of this. Whenever the Israelites looked upon the stone, they should have remembered, we have a God who keeps on granting help from above. So the Lord's help was supernatural, it was consistent, and it was also wonderfully effective. And look at the consequences that this particular instance of help gave rise to. Verse 13 says, So the Philistines were subdued. They did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. Uh, that's a short-term consequence. Uh, we do read of subsequent Philistine attacks later on in 1 Samuel, but at, at this point... The Philistines stopped entering the territory. And then there's a long-term consequence. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of 
Samuel. So there was the short-term reprieve, but then on into the long-term, God kept the Philistines at bay. It seems that uh, before this time, uh, the Philistines appeared to keep having the upper hand in the conflict, but from this point on, they lost their position of dominance. They still launched attacks, but the Lord didn't let them gain any significant grip upon the land. Uh, Captured cities were reclaimed by the Israelites, and there was no more conflict with the Amorites, we're told. In other words, things are starkly different for Israel now. They're very different at the end of chapter 7 from how they were at the beginning of chapter 7. What made the difference? Help from heaven. God's provision has been wonderfully effective. They now have a good, faithful, stable judge leading the nation under God. Samuel travels around, presiding over various cases among the people and presumably reminding them of God's laws and commandments, encouraging them to stay faithful to Yahweh, the God he himself consistently worships, as indicated by his building of an altar in verse 17. God has drastically altered the whole situation, not just militarily, but spiritually within the nation. And God remains today exactly the same kind of God as the one being presented to you and me here in 1 Samuel 7. A God whose help is supernatural and consistent and very effective. God's people don't endure and advance and stand firm and triumph because of their own innate power. The explanation for good things happening among God's people is always the Lord's help has come. And our great need is to continually remember this. We so easily become forgetful, don't we? We lose sight of the fact that we've received so much help in the past. And so when some new, fresh difficulty arises, we have a tendency, don't we, to fall into panic and despair. And we we think that this time there is no way forward. And and this time uh, there's no way out of the situation. We forget the dozens and dozens of times God has already helped us in the past. And we act as though this situation, this new problem is insurmountable and it's overwhelming and there's nothing that can be done about it. Like Israel of old, we need to train our minds to keep on looking backwards. Samuel set up the Ebenezer because he knew God's people so readily forget things. The stone served as an aid to their memory. It would prompt them to remember all the times God had helped them before. That's what you, likewise, need to keep on remembering. You need to remember the help that God gave throughout biblical history, getting his people out of trouble over and over again, uh, giving them escape from numerous difficulties, overcoming countless obstacles. We can look back at subsequent history and see numerous ways in which God has helped his people down through the ages. And then we can look back over our own personal experience and play it Over in our minds, the prayers God has answered, the trials he's enabled you to endure, the strength he's given you in difficult situations, the way he's kept you and preserved you and used you and drawn near to you and provided for you and protected you and delivered you. And ultimately, there's one place we can all look as the ultimate proof and confirmation of God's heavenly help. We can look to a cross, can't we? Where we see help incarnate. God's own Son. The visible manifestation of God's love. Where is he? He's in agony. He's smeared all over with blood. 
He's the object of ridicule. He's full of physical pain. He's submerged in the wrath and judgment of God. Why is he there? He's there for us. He's there to help us. He's there to lift us out of our self-made mess. To suffer in our place the judgment that ought to be raining down on our own heads. You can't get any better proof that God is a God who helps the helpless than that, can you? God incarnate, becoming a man, enduring weakness, drinking up bitterness, tasting our hell to lift us out of the perilous situation we have got ourselves into. We don't need visual reminders today, though, do we? As in Old Testament times. Well, actually, yes, we do. And God, in his wisdom, has given us one. He's given us the Lord's Supper. He's determined it's not merely enough to tell us to remember what Christ did. He's given us a concrete, tangible, physical way of doing so. Bread and wine as visual monuments to the sacrifice Christ made to us. That's why the Lord's Supper must always remain an absolutely central, crucial part in the life of any fellowship. We mustn't neglect it. Why is it so necessary? Because God knows remembering is so important. And so there's a very useful lesson for us here in the raising up of an Ebenezer. We need to be those who deliberately and actively spend time looking backwards and recalling all the ways that God has helped us in the past because the memory of the past is what fortifies us for the present. Going down memory lane, as someone might call it disparagingly, is a very practical thing to do because it reinforces to us if God has been faithful, if God has been sufficient, if God has been gracious up until now, how can I possibly dream up a scenario where uh, the great eternal everlasting Jehovah changes and stops being the kind of God he's always been, not just throughout my life, but throughout the whole of history? It's unthinkable. He's not suddenly going to change. If he's helped you in the past, there is no situation that can ever confront you about which you can say, this is going to be too much. Not when Almighty God is for you. And so we're to let God's help to us in the past reassure us in the present. Aren't you glad that it's nonsense to say that God helps those who help themselves? Quite the contrary is revealed in Scripture. He's the God who helps those who can't help themselves. The God who keeps on granting help to the helpless, the foolish, the straying, the weak, the woefully inadequate human race here on earth. People like you and me. This is the God that you are called to serve and trust and follow. And this is why, however dark things become for you personally or for us corporately as Christ's church, We never face a single case, scenario, situation or circumstance where it is legitimate to despair. We never need to because of the God we have on high, a God who accepts repentance. Our sin is never so bad that we can't be restored. A God who hears prayer. Your problems are never so huge that they can't be overcome by him. A God who grants help. Your situation is never so desperate that... God can't sustain you or turn things around. And thankfully, he grants that help, not in accordance with what you and I deserve, but all in accordance with the unfathomable riches of his grace displayed 
most spectacularly at the cross. Amen.